0: Mark chapter 11, we'll begin with verse 27. It's where we left off last week. We are presently in what is historically known as Jesus' week of passion. This section, the Gospel of Mark, finds us in the last seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry. On Sunday, chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 11, Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem. It was what we call the triumphal entry. And in arriving triumphantly into Jerusalem with the people singing Hosanna, Hosanna, there were two key functions, two things Jesus was presenting himself to Israel as. One, the king. But secondly, he was presenting himself as the Passover sacrifice. And you should note that his timing is not accidental. Four days before the Passover, which would begin Thursday evening, so four days before Passover began, it was customary for the people of Israel to present to the priests their sacrifice. On Sunday, it was customary for the Jews who were coming into the temple to be presenting to the priests their sacrificial lamb. And Jesus Presenting himself on Sunday as the ultimate sacrifice was not an accident. Now, on Monday, Jesus, as he's making his way to the temple, he curses Israel, the fig tree, for their fruitlessness before entering into the temple and driving out the money changers, effectively shutting down the temple business. Now, when we were examining this passage, I made a comment because we're told that Jesus permitted that no one should carry wares. And if you recall, as we were looking at that section of Scripture, I said that there were a lot of theories as to what that was describing. Nonetheless, universally, it describes the fact that Jesus, after kicking out the money changers, overturning the tables, that that Jesus then shut down business, this temple racket. Well, I ran across a scholar this past week, a Hebrew scholar, that presented an idea concerning the temple wares that I not only love, but i find very relevant for this morning's message he theorized that in refusing anyone to carry wares that jesus was actually stopping he was no longer permitting the carrying of the ritual vessels now why is that significant well that's significant because jesus was not just taking care of what was happening in the outer court of the gentiles money changers, this racket, the rigmarole that was taking place. But in permitting that no one was allowed to carry ritual vessels through the temple, Jesus was effectively ending. He was shutting down the presenting of what? Of Passover sacrifices. Now, now you have to ask yourself, why would Jesus shut down the permitting of Passover sacrifices on Monday when God had commissioned, he had told the people to offer sacrifices, right? So when God would say you should offer sacrifices for atonement, why would Jesus shut down the presenting of these sacrifices on Monday? Well, the answer is because the day before he had entered the temple presenting himself as what? As the ultimate, eternal, permanent Passover sacrifice, meaning what? That any sacrifice to follow would be worthless, would be pointless. Why would Jesus shut down the offering of the Passover lambs on Monday? It's because he had presented himself on Sunday as the ultimate lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Now, it was customary. The reason that the sacrifices were presented on Sunday was that over the next four days leading up to Passover itself, the lambs, the sacrifices would undergo a rigorous inspection by the priest, ensuring that the sacrifices in accordance with the book of Exodus were without spot or blemish. They had to be perfect. And we'll find that this process, the process of inspecting the Passover sacrifice, is about to begin with Jesus. Because we're told in verse 27, then they, this is Jesus, his entourage, they came again to Jerusalem. Now it's Tuesday morning. The verses we looked at last week were happening on the journey from Bethany to Jerusalem. So it's Tuesday morning, same day as before, and as Jesus was entering the temple, as he's walking into the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to Jesus. There's an ambush. He enters the temple. They're waiting for him. None of this is by accident. And we're told that they said to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, remember, the religious establishment, they have already hatched a a plot to do Jesus in. Uh, They've already set up the scheme by which they're going to destroy Jesus. The only hang-up, their biggest fear, the hurdle, is that they feared the people because though the religious establishment wanted to do Jesus in, the population loved Jesus. And they knew that if they came in and arrested Jesus with a mob present, that this would end badly for themselves. Now Judas has already agreed at this point in time to give the religious establishment a time and a place where they could arrest Jesus away from the multitude that were always with him and always traveling. Judas would give them the locale where they could arrest Jesus away from the mob under the cover of darkness. But even then, in order to justify their actions with the people, they would need to chip away at his credibility. Now, this would be easier said than done. Jesus, as you know, was a carpenter by trade. And the nature of his credibility, the nature of his authority had always been an issue, an avenue that his critics felt that they could exploit. This rabbi had no credentials. He was a carpenter. And so clearly we can try to to attack his authority and his credibility, his credentials with the people. And yet, Time and time again, Jesus proved to be the Teflon man. I mean, nothing would stick. No attempt had proved successful. And you'll remember earlier on, we saw a smear campaign launched by the same group of people. When they came and they tried to tell the people that, yes, Jesus was doing these amazing works, but under the power or the authority not of God, but of whom? Of Satan. And as we've examined, that didn't stick. That didn't sit well with the people. They looked at what Jesus was doing, and they're like, there's no way that this is from Satan. This has to be from God. Now, though it was clear that Jesus' calling was from the Father, his credentials came not from a piece of paper, a diploma, degree, internship, endorsement. Jesus' credentials came from two other sources, First, his credentials came from his knowledge of Scripture. This was obvious. Anyone that had encountered Jesus walked away amazed, over and over and over again. You'll see it through the Gospel of Mark. Amazed, astonished by what he said. Even to the point that, like, we have never heard anyone teach us the Word of God like Jesus. Above and beyond any name tag that Jesus would wear or any title, Jesus was a preacher, and his knowledge of Scripture was second to none. It was intimidating how this carpenter from Nazareth would have the knowledge, even at the age of 12, if you'll recall. He astonished the priests and the scribes there in the temple with his knowledge of Scripture. But the second bit of credential that Jesus carried with him was, well, the lives transformed through his ministry. I mean, you looked at his knowledge of scripture, you couldn't debate that. You couldn't attack that. Nor could you really attack the essence of the power of his ministry because of the multitude that traveled with him. You would have one guy that had been possessed by a legion of demons who's now in his right mind, fully clothed, following Jesus. And you would have this guy who was lame from birth, who had come and encountered Jesus and now could walk and was following him. You would have this guy who was blind, Bartimaeus, is with Jesus. Who religion, nobody else could remedy his problem, but Jesus had just an encounter with Jesus, and he could see the lepers that had been healed. You see, Jesus' credentials didn't come from a piece of paper. They came from his knowledge of Scripture and the lives that had been transformed through his ministry, neither of which these religious leaders could attack. And so, because of these two realities, this is why they instead target the nature and the origin of his authority. Now, the religious leaders, they ask two basic questions that address the same core issue. We're told that they ask, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do them? The essence of their question, who made you... An authority over us. Okay, you might have authority over people, over the common folk, over those bumpkins from Nazareth. But who made you an authority over us? The religious leaders, the educated. I mean, we're Levites. This is our heritage. This is what we've been born into. We have this ordination from God. Okay, we can recognize your authority over the common man, but who gave you authority over us? Who gave you authority to accept praise from the people or to speak for God? My father's house shall be not made a den of thieves. Who gave you that authority to drive out the money changers, to put an end to the temple sacrifices, to judge us as being fruitless? Who made you the authority over us? This was their question. Jesus answered. And he says, okay, I also will ask you one question. Then if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. This is Jesus' question. Was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, if you're like me, isn't it one of the most annoying things in the world to ask someone a question and not receive an answer, but only get just another question? I mean, isn't that the most annoying thing in the world? Like you ask a question, you don't get an answer, you get a question. And in rules for Western debate, that's often an indicator that they don't want to give you an answer. They're going to try to distract you or, or divert the, the topic at hand. So what is Jesus doing? Why is Jesus answering their question with a question? I think there's three very easy uh, reasons to explain Jesus' response. First, he had already answered this question before. As a matter of fact, over and over and over again, Jesus had answered the question concerning his authority. To anyone that had listened to Jesus, his authority, where he received it, was not a secret Time and time again, he would say, I- I'm not here to do anything of myself. Like, I'm not here to do my will at all. I'm here to do the will of my Father who sent me. From the beginning of his earthly ministry all the way through, Jesus made it clear that he was here to do what God wanted him to do, not what he wanted to do, that his authority rested in God. But secondly, you should note that Jesus is simply operating in the Eastern way of debate. You see, in the Eastern cultures, the way that one would debate, the way that the rabbis in the first century debated, is that they would ask you a question. And in, in order to gauge whether or not their question had any sincerity behind it, or if they were there for honest debate and dialogue, it was customary to respond to that question with another question. In essence, say, you've asked me a question. And I'll give you an answer, but in goodwill, I'm going to ask you a question. You answer me, and then I'll answer you. It was just the way that the debate took place in the first century. So this is not Jesus dodging a question, not to mention. I think he responds this way because Jesus, he designed his question here about John to reveal why they would never accept his answer, And so Jesus is being very shrewd. Okay, you're going to play a game. We're going to have this debate. It's in the temple. There's a huge multitude. Everyone's listening in. All right, let's play. And so he asks them about John's authority. Was it from heaven or from men? Now, this was shrewd because Jesus's authority originated from where? Where? the same place that John's authority originated from. Secondly, John's whole message was about what? We've looked at it before. Repent of your sins because Jesus is the Messiah and you should shut up and listen to him. And so if John's authority was from heaven and John's whole message was that Jesus was from heaven, then this would be self-defeating. thirdly, the people loved John. And so this really backed These religious leaders who had ambushed Jesus, it it turned the table. Because if they spoke ill of John, the people wouldn't be very happy about it because the people regarded John as a prophet. And so we're told that they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, well, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. For they answered and said to Jesus, well, we don't know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And I can hear like, oh, snap, from the crowd, right? Because Jesus has just totally flipped the script. The people see they're copping out, and Jesus is like, boom. I mean, really, the Twitter feed was hashtag. Boom, Jesus. I mean, really, this is how it rolled. Now, I gotta give the religious leaders credit for being logical. For anything, we'll give them credit for being logical. If John was a prophet and they admitted it, that meant that they were guilty of rejecting a prophet of God. If they claim that John wasn't a prophet, which would have been their right to do as the religious leaders, they were to, to judge all the prophets to come into the land, say this one's a legitimate prophet and this one's a false prophet. But if they said that, 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 well, John wasn't actually a prophet, well, they knew the people would turn against them. However, their answer, they're sound in their logic, but their answer, we don't know. Basically, the shrug of the shoulders was completely disingenuous. I mean, either they were guilty of rejecting a prophet of God or they were guilty of placating to the wishes of the people. And either scenario, this is horrible leadership for a spiritual person. For a religious leader, this is horrible leadership. Cowering in fear to the wishes of the people. Either scenario. These religious leaders were being mendacious. The truth is that they knew what they knew John was a prophet, but they were too cowardly to admit it, so Jesus answers, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things jesus approach revealed that the religious leaders they weren't really sincere in their question, were they? they weren't coming to Jesus with a sincere heart, seeking the revelation of truth, and because they weren 't sincere. And approaching Jesus with their question, Jesus doesn't answer their question. It's as though that Jesus looks at him and he shakes his head and he says, if you won't recognize John's authority, then you'll never recognize mine. So what are we doing? Which leads me to the first observation, which is not the first time we've made this observation, but it should be stated again. Jesus over and over and over and over and over again, is constantly with open arms and open heart and open mind receiving the honest skeptic. The person who doesn't have the answers and is coming to Jesus for truth because they sincerely want the truth, Jesus is over and over and over again receiving this person and ministering to this person and not turning the person away because they have questions, but instead logically answering their questions with God's word, knowing that it's by hearing God's word that we have faith in God. But Jesus, equally, over and over and over again, he will not entertain the questions of those who are disingenuous. My second observation is that similar questions concerning authority abound today. You know, I find this question that the religious leaders ask, who made you the authority over us? You know that question? We we find it in the first century, asked posed by a group of Jewish religious leaders with a monotheistic worldview, It's posed by them in regards to Jesus. But this same question, who made you the authority over us? It is the ultimate chorus sung by a culture rapidly embracing the philosophy known as relativism. In case you're not aware, let me give you a definition of relativism. Relativism is the philosophical position which states that all points of view are equally valid And therefore, all truth is relative solely to the perspective of each individual. What is true for you might be true for you, but that doesn't make it true for me. Now, because relativism was birthed from a philosophical perspective that had removed God, relativism makes, it's really unique. I mean, for centuries and centuries and centuries, whether you were a Christian or not, it didn't matter. There was a pervasive philosophy, God was here and man was here, right? I mean, no one really debated that. Creator, creation. And then during the Enlightenment, things begin to kind of, kind of shift, kind of morph. God was still in the equation, but man was exalted to the same level of God. So beforehand, where you had all of the art that was God-centric, during the Enlightenment, it became what? Man-centric. Man was elevated to the same level, the same plane as God. And then as the centuries progressed, then man catapulted God so that God was mainly an idea of man for man to the point that within the last hundred years, we live in a culture that has removed God entirely. First time in the history of the planet this has taken place, where God has been completely removed from the equation. Do we even need the idea of God anymore? First, it was God and man, and then man equal to God. And then, okay, God still existed, but man was superior to God, and God was simply an idea we use for man. But do we even need that? And so God's been removed, and relativism was birthed from this idea, the removal of God from the human equation. And thus, relativism abandons all absolute moral truth, embracing instead a position which everyone acts upon their own perspective of what's right and wrong. Nietzsche said it this way. He said, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, it does not exist. Since all perspectives in our culture carry equal weight, anyone who stands for a universal moral absolute they become labeled as intolerant. It's interesting that intolerance has become the only punishable crime of relativism. And don't think that relativism hasn't taken root in the church, the modern church. Our parents, my parents, your parents, doesn't matter how old you are, the parents, they ask this question, when it would come to Scripture, they would ask, small group setting, whatnot, after reading a passage, they would look around and say, what does this verse say to you? What does it say to you? The truth presented from Scripture was considered absolute, but it was then the application of that truth that was left to the individual's perspective. So, okay, what does this passage say to you? Here's the truth. Now, how is that truth applied into your life? So it was the application that was left to the prospective individuals, not the truth itself. But today's generation, and I spent 10 years in youth ministry, and I presently continue to minister uh, in a school setting with 50 unchurched, unsaved, pagan high school students. I'm telling you this is the way that it is. Today's generation doesn't ask, what does this verse say to you? This generation asks instead, what does this verse mean to you? It's a subtle but radical difference. The definition of truth, or what the passage is actually saying, and its application are now left to the individual's perspective. In many ways, the emergent church would not. Personal interpretation of Scripture has actually usurped its literal meaning. And that is a byproduct of relativism. Now, why is this significant? Why bring it up, Zach? In our culture, if you take a stand against, and I'm just gonna use this as an example because it's relevant. But if you were to take a moral stand against homosexuality, on the basis of what the Bible says concerning appropriate, and inappropriate sexual behavior, you will be, I mean, this is as sure as it can be, and it will only get worse moving forward. If you take a stand against homosexual behavior on the basis of what the Bible says concerning permissible and impermissible sexual behavior, you will be labeled as intolerant. You will be labeled as judgmental. You will be labeled as bigoted. Even by some Christians. And they will say, who are you? Who are you to say what kind of sex or sexual behavior is or isn't permissible? Who gave you the authority? Who made you the authority to tell another person what they can or can't do? Ever heard these things before? Now here's the reality of relativism. If there is no God, then you have no authority to tell anyone what they can and can't do. There's actually, if relativism is true and God doesn't exist and there are no moral absolutes, then there is no basis for any one of you or me to tell anyone else to obey your moral standards. That would be wrong. And tolerance would be the crime of relativism if we really are a nation that is removing God, if we are no longer a nation under God, then we have lost all basis for telling anyone what they can do or what they can't do. If we are not a nation under God, then we as a church have no right to tell two same gender individuals in love that they can't marry. If there is no God and we are not a nation under God, we have no right. You have no right. I have no right. But we do believe we're a nation under God. And we do believe in a higher moral power. You see, since we do believe there is a God who is by definition true and has established what is true for mankind, therefore, the basis for what's right and what's wrong, that God has established this as being true through his word, then what is morally permissible or what is right and what is wrong is now no longer a matter of one's own perspective, but instead it's a matter of what God has to say concerning that behavior. Either God establishes what is right or wrong, or we do. But if we do without God, then all bets are off. Nietzsche actually really understood this, and he went nuts because of it. He literally went insane because he saw what relativism, removing God, would really do to society. How we have no moral basis for any claim. You see, the thing today that kind of irritates me is, okay, we're out there saying, who are you to say... Our culture will say, who are you to say that two homosexual people can't get married? Who are you, who gave you the right to deny them that liberty? But it's these same people that will then turn around and tell three people, consenting adults and love, that they can't marry. What gives them the moral basis for that? They're consenting adults. They're in love. They fit all the same criteria. Why can't they adopt? Why can't they be in a union? Ironically, I think if Joseph Smith and Brigham Young had just hung around another 100 years, Utah wouldn't have had to remove polygamy to become a state. This is where we're progressing because when you remove absolutes, all bets are off. Here's the irony. When you take a stand against immoral behavior. And I hope you do. I know you'll get labeled. I hope you take a stand on the basis of the truth of the Bible. And when people then accuse you of being intolerant and judgmental, whether they realize it or not, you should take heart because their issue really isn't with you. Their issues with God. Who gave you the authority well, no one really made me the authority. I'm just appealing to God. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. As a matter of fact, I'm just relaying what God says about what's right and what's wrong. So your issue really isn't with me. I'm just the messenger. Your issue is, is actually with God. And these critics, who will accuse you of being intolerant and judgmental, the irony is that they're actually right and that accusation against God. I mean, think about it for a moment. God, I hate to break it to you, but God is actually very intolerant of sinful, unrepentant human behavior. And there will come a day when he will judge human beings On the basis of whether or not they accepted or rejected what? His truth. And when I say his truth, I mean Jesus, who was the way, the truth, and the life. Is God intolerant? Yeah, he actually really is. When it comes to sin, because he knows that there's a better way. And is he judgmental? Yeah. It's a tough pill to swallow, but it's true. And he will judge based upon what we do with truth, whether we accept it or whether we reject it. Whose authority? You know, you would be wise. Our culture would be wise, but let's personalize it. You would be wise to consider this thought. Does God exist? Because if God doesn't exist, then it doesn't matter. But if God does exist, then does God have the authority to tell you what to do? It's a very simple thought process. And then more specifically in regards to our text, it's still the same applicable question. Is Jesus God? And if Jesus is God and you check yes, then the next question you should consider is this, Does Jesus have the authority to tell you what to do? To tell you how to live? To tell you what to do with your money? To tell you how to raise your kids? Does Jesus have the authority, if he's God, to tell you what to do? By what authority are you doing these things? Now, Jesus, in the whole interaction here, right, he basically sets this up. You've asked me a question, I'll ask a question, you give me an answer, then I'll follow up with the answer to your question. And he basically tells them, okay, you've copped out, I'm not going to answer you, but, but this is what I'll do. I'm going to tell you a little story that I think will help you out a little bit, explain a little of what's going on. We're told then Immediately, directly following this exchange with the religious leaders. The crowd's still there. This is a continual flow. It's Tuesday. They're in the temple. There's a multitude. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. Now, I'm not going to rehash what a parable is, the purpose of parables. I would encourage you to go back into the archive and listen to the Bible study and from Mark chapter 4. Because we take a moment when we're getting into the the, the section of, of parables in the Gospel of Mark where we're explaining the purpose, how to view a parable, how not to view a parable. Go back to the study, first 20 verses of Mark 4. But Jesus speaks to them in parables, and he says, so here's a story. A man planted a vineyard, and he set a hedge around it, and he dug a place for a wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers, and the owner, he went into a far country. Now let me define a few of the terms, what, what each part of the story, what it actually represents. The man who planted the vineyard is God, and the vineyard is Israel. Now once again, for the sake of time, I'm speeding this along. There are biblical. Old Testament references that establish each of the components of the parable. So I'm not pulling this out of thin air. So God planted the vineyard, that being Israel. And we know that, that God called Abraham out of Ur and said that I will make you a mighty nation. And then after a hiatus in Egypt, he sent them to the land of promise and said that he would root them there in that land. So God planted a vineyard and we're told that he set a hedge around Israel. He dug a place for the wine vat. He built a tower, meaning that God not only was personally involved in the planting of the vineyard of the nation, but then he provided everything that would be necessary to ensure its growth, its stability, its protection, its fruitfulness. God gave them the law. He gave them the sacrificial system. He established religious leaders that God planted this vineyard and then he set it all up where it could succeed and it could grow and it could produce sweet fruit. Then we're told that he handed it over to the vine dressers, and the vine dressers are the religious leaders of Israel. Now at vintage time, or the time when fruit should be yielding itself, he, being God, sent a servant. I'm going to go ahead and give you the context for the servant. These are the prophets. So God sent a prophet to the vine dressers, the religious leaders. that God or he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard or his people from the vine dressers. But they took him, the prophet, and they beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again, God sent the religious leaders another servant or a prophet. And at him, were told they threw stones. They wounded him in the head. They sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he, God, sent another prophet, and him, they, the religious leaders, they killed, and many others, or multiple prophets over and over and over again. God would sin, but what would the religious leaders do? They would beat some and kill some. Now, Jesus is using this parable to kind of recount, really, the entire Old Testament. I mean, this is the story of the Old Testament. God calling Abraham rooting him into a land of promise, growing that group of people, placing that nation, religious leaders, that were charged with their development and their growth, that they were to be a spiritual beacon to the lost world around them, that they were to produce fruit. And over and over and over again, God would send prophets, messengers, his representatives to receive some of this fruit, but instead, well, they would find wild fruit, rotten fruit, and the religious leaders would persecute them over and over and over again. So Jesus is recounting the past experiences that God has had with Israel. Hebrews 11, verses 35 through 38 says that others, speaking of the prophets, they were tortured. Others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. Some were stoned, some were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. These are God's representatives to Israel. This is how Israel treated them, right in line line with this parable. And then you gotta love the fact, right? That as Jesus is recounting the story, he sends a prophet. This is how he's treated. And again, what does God do? He sends another prophet. This is how he was treated. And again, and again, and again. Even after their continued rejection of the messengers of God, God continued to demonstrate great grace over and over and over again by sending another and another and another. And this is Jesus' point. At, what more at this juncture can God do? Right? He wants fruit. He sends his messengers. They get beaten and killed and, and run away. So he sends another and another and another. At this point, what can God do? And he answers it, therefore, God, still having one son, his beloved, now this is not simply a prophet, but this is God's son. He sent him to them, the religious leaders last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance, the right to the vineyard, the right to Israel will be ours. And so they took him, the Son of God, and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Now imagine for a moment the power of what Jesus is saying. So the first half, the first third of the parable, right, is Jesus talking about God's past interactions with Israel, they would reject the prophets. But then this is what's weird about this, this middle third, this second third, is because Jesus goes from talking about the past interactions that God had with Israel to the present interactions. Like Jesus is using the parable now to describe what's happening right then and there. Because what? Because he was the son who had been sent last to Israel. And what was happening, these vine dressers We're rejecting him. And all the somber moment this must have have appeared in Jesus' face as he's telling the story. The question, what more could God have done? Jesus answers, Well, having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last. You know, there has never been and never will be a greater demonstration of God's love for you in Israel. Israel the world then when he sent his only begotten son it is the greatest demonstration of god's love for you i know it's a common verse but it's powerful nonetheless john 3:16 says for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that the motivation of giving his son was his love for the world that whoever believes in his son should not perish but have everlasting life. And then verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And what was the religious leader's reaction to God sending his son, the heir to the vineyard? Well, Jesus makes it clear that they would knowingly reject and kill the son of God. And in doing so, Jesus I mean, it's easy to see that he's cutting to the heart of the issue, isn't he? How this all ties together. These religious leaders ambush Jesus in the temple. And what do they challenge? They challenge his authority. Where did you get your authority? The irony is that they already knew. According to the parable, according to what Jesus is saying, they already knew. They knew that he was the Messiah. They knew he was the son of the one who had planted the vineyard. They knew he was the heir. They knew he was the son of God. And the implication here to me, it's radical. Because what this tells me is that these religious leaders, and this is important for everything else that happens, they were not acting out of ignorance. This was premeditated. They were acting with knowledge. Therefore, in response to their willful rejection of God's Son, Jesus asks, Well, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Matthew chapter 21 actually says that when Jesus asks this question, What will the owner of the vineyard do? That that the audience, they're engaged, they're connected, they're at the edge of their seat. And when Jesus asked this question, the people actually are the ones that respond. Matthew 21, 41, they said to him in response, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit in their season. Now, how did they know the answer? I think there's two reasons. One, it's obvious, right? I mean, they, they would have known that any just owner of a vineyard who leased that vineyard to other people and whose messengers kept being treated this way, whose son was ultimately killed in such a way, that like any just vine vineyard owner is gonna come and destroy anyone that would handle his property and his people in such a way. So it's kind of like logical. It's obvious. They're sitting there thinking, if that was my vineyard, this is how I would handle it. I would throw down. But secondly, I think more importantly, for the religious leaders primarily, they had heard this parable before. In Isaiah chapter five, let me read it for you. The first seven verses. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. "'My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. "'He dug it up and cleared out its stones "'and planted it with the choicest vine, "'and he built a tower in its midst, "'and he also made a winepress in it, "'so he expected it to bring forth good grapes.'" Sound familiar? But it brought forth wild grapes. "'And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, "'judge please between me and my vineyard.'" What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Now please, tell me what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned. And I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, and it will not be pruned or dug, but they shall come briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they not rain on it For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is, and this is what I'm saying, like all of these are defined, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant plant, and he looked for justice, but behold oppression, for righteousness, but behold a cry for help. Jesus discussed his past dealings with Israel through the prophets. Then he describes their present rejection of God's Son, before prophetically examining what would follow their willful rejection of the Son, and that would be judgment. Now, there's a few observations we should make about the judgment. First, the Son. The Son was God's final messenger before judgment. The judgment wouldn't come before the Son, but would only come after the fact and after he was rejected. Secondly, their destruction, it would be initiated by God. You know, God might use other situations and circumstances as his instrument, but ultimately God's the one with his hand on the paddle. Like that God was the one that would destroy and judge Israel. He will come and he will destroy. Now yes, God would use the Romans, but God was behind it. And thirdly, His favor then would be given to another, and he would give the vineyard to others. And the fulfillment of this prophecy, it came in two phases. Because Israel rejected Jesus, the Apostle Paul speaks at great length concerning it, but the gospel would go to whom? To others, to the Gentiles. On Pentecost, the church would be born by the Spirit of God, and his favor would shift. It would transition off of Israel, and instead onto the church. Now, I believe that God's favor will come back to Israel at some point in the future, and I think we see the rumblings of that now, but we'll leave that to a B-side. Secondly, because Israel rejected Jesus in 70 AD, God did indeed judge them. He did tear down their wall and trample them underfoot, Israel would be destroyed and briars and thistles would grow in the land. Israel was displaced throughout the rest of the world never to come back to their land until May 1948. Verse 10, have you not even read this scripture? And he quotes Psalms 118. He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And you know, everything is measured, should be measured off the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes and when he said this they sought to lay hands on him but they feared the multitude for they knew he had spoken the parable against them so they left him and they went his what they went their way you know this passage to me it, it really illustrates it demonstrates it highlights i think the saddest reality that exists the saddest reality that exists is the fact that even with clear revelation of God, even with the clear revelation of the Father, coupled with the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, which is what we see happening here, the revelation of the Father, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there will still be people who will willfully, Reject what they know is true, that Jesus is God and was sent for them. And that is the saddest of all realities, that people will reject what they know to be true. These men knew it. They knew where Jesus' authority came from. They knew the parable was against them. There was a conviction in their heart, but they wouldn't respond. They hardened themselves. It's sad that we see this today. You should note that in your life, Jesus is the final point of God's revelation before his judgment. Jesus and Jesus alone is your last and final hope. He's your last line of defense. If you're waiting for someone else to come by or God to say something differently, you will be amiss that Jesus is God's last word on the subject, you either accept him or, re- or you reject him, but know what follows, judgment. Charles Spurgeon, he said it this way, If you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ be rejected, hope is rejected. The wordsmith Charles Spurgeon, it's hard to say it better, and yet I hope you don't allow it to go in one ear and out the other, I know you're hearing the word and I know it's pricking deep within your heart the knowledge of the truth. And there's a convicting work of the Holy Spirit my exhortation is accept Jesus. The truth of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for you, so that you might not be condemned but might be saved that God desires not to destroy the vineyard, but that the vineyard might produce fruit. God desires not to destroy your life, but that your life might yield fruit. I pray you'll heed that. And more importantly and more pressing, that you'll respond to that. And so, Father,